We are going to be covering two passages in Scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 32 through 36, just four little verses. And then we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to be reading out of the NLT translation. So if you have your U version or your Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to those, we'll go through those together. Let's start with Mark, chapter 13. We're going to read this together. However... No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, He gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. Some of you might be asking, what exactly is going on here in this passage? This particular passage in Scripture is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he is speaking with his disciples, particularly four of them, his inner circle of disciples. And he has just got done talking to them about the, um, he, he gave a rather jarring prophecy of the events that are going to transpire before his triumphant return, and he wants the disciples to be uh, prepared spiritually. Now, here's the thing. The disciples have some pretty mixed-up ideas about who Jesus is. At this point in Scripture, by the time we arrive to Mark chapter 13, the disciples still don't get it. They think that Jesus is the Messiah of legend that they always heard about, this powerful political military leader that's descended from the line of David who is going to come and vanquish their oppressors, the Roman Empire, and then set up his earthly kingdom on earth. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not who I am. They also have some pretty mixed up ideas about themselves as far as disciples, and they think that taking up their crosses and following Jesus means that they're going to receive status, fame, and recognition. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. As a matter of fact, Jesus explicitly warns the disciples that you will be hated for following me. You will be hated for loving me. And he wants them to understand that before we go any further, he's like, it's going to get hard for you. One thing I wanted to share about being disciples Each and every one of us, whether we know it or not, who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, you are not a Christian, but rather a disciple. Are you aware of that this morning? Are you running your race with endurance this morning? Are you even aware that you're in a race? There's nothing in Scripture that guarantees us that taking up our crosses and following Jesus guarantees us a life of status and wealth. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that taking up our cross and following Jesus guarantees that we're going to be healthy all the time. There's nothing in Scripture that guarantees us that taking up our crosses and following Jesus means that we are going to be liked 
even by our own families. Jesus warns the disciples. He talks about how family members are going to turn against one another for Christ. Children are going to turn their parents over to the authorities for loving Christ. Parents are going to turn their children over for following Christ. But there's one thing that Jesus also wants us to know this morning. He's coming back. Everybody say he's coming back. And what Jesus is saying is he says, look, I'm coming back for you. You don't know when. He's saying the angels in heaven don't even know. He's saying I and my humanity don't even know. Now notice something real quick. Jesus is not for one second denying his deity. But what Jesus is acknowledging is that there is a distinction between himself and God and the roles in which they occupy. You see, it wasn't Jesus that raised himself from the dead. It was God who raised him from the dead, right? And so he's saying there are certain secrets that only the Father knows. And when I am coming back, he said, only God knows. But he wants us to be ready. I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you are old enough to remember when you reached an age where you were able to be left at home by your parents? For me, it was around the age of 12 or 13. And just to tell you guys a little bit about me, I hate shopping. You know, we're, we're, we're approaching the holiday season. It's kind of snuck up on me, as I'm sure it snuck up on a lot of you. And there's, if there's one thing I don't look forward to, it's shopping. I cannot stand it. I don't like going to Walmart. It drives me nuts. And I can remember when I was a kid, I hated going shopping with my mom. You know, no kid likes being dragged from store to store to store, right? It's just, it's just boring. You know, I wanted to go to the toy aisle. I want to go to the video game aisle. I want to go to the candy aisle, right? I don't want to be walking around looking for vegetables, looking at clothing and all that stuff. <laughs> Why would any kid want to be an elder bearman? I don't even know. <laughs> but I can remember when I reached an age, it was about 12 or 13, uh, my mom would say, listen, you don't have to come to the store with me. You can stay home. But... Right? You guys know where I'm going with this. By the time I get back, that kitchen better be clean. By the time I get back, the trash better be taken out. By the time I get back, this house better be clean. Right? And even if she didn't explicitly state what I was supposed to do, notice there was always an implication of expectation. Right? In other words, there are certain behaviors that I expect of you while I am gone. I don't expect you to be slothing around. I don't expect you to be goofing around. I don't expect you to be partying and invite your friends over. I don't expect you to be outside. I expect you to be taking care of the house. But you see, the problem is, like, like most kids around that age, you know, we, we don't have the greatest sense of self-awareness. We're not always so clever. And a lot of times when my mom would leave, I would, you know, I'd wait for her to get out the door and she'd get in the car and she'd leave and I'm like, well, the cat's away. And instead of doing dishes, I would say, eh, you know what, I'll think I'll uh, Or if I didn't do that, I'd think, well, you know what, I think I'll... Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, issue 123, 1973, written by Stan Lee himself. 
Here you go, brother. And if I didn't do that, then sometimes I would <sighs> I think I'll kick back and take a little nap, right? And before you knew it, 20 minutes would go by, half an hour would go by, 30 pages would go by, 10 levels would go by. And just when I think that things couldn't possibly be any better, just when I think that I couldn't be having any more fun, just when I think that I'm scot-free and everything's great, all of a sudden I'd hear the worst sound any child could ever hear. And now where there were feelings of fun, where there were feelings of apathy, where there were feelings of carelessness, now those feelings are out the window. And in their place are feelings of fear, feelings of terror, <laughs> feelings of hurried frustration. And now I'm scrambling around trying to find a broom, and I'm scrambling around, and the, and the, and the dishwater won't fill up fast enough, and then mama come in the house, and all of a sudden I'm, Scrambling around, but as the old saying goes, you can fool some people sometime. You can fool all the people some of the time, but you can't fool everybody all the time. And you can't fool your mama none of the time. <laughs> Why did I get in trouble? Because I didn't take care of the house. Why do I share a story like this with you this morning? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, I share this story with you because, number one, there are a lot of people in this church that I still don't know. And I want to get to know many of you guys, but one of the ways I can do that is by being transparent with you and telling you stories about this because I think I speak for myself. I speak for Pastor Brad. I speak for Randy, Jack, you know, Pastor Don. I'll call him Father Don. Pastor Don. Caleb, you know, we don't want you to think for one second that just because we're up here teaching and preaching that we have it all together. We certainly don't. We're human beings. We, we slip up. We have issues. We, everybody has a past, a point of reference. So I want you to know who I am. The other reason I tell you this story is because this is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. He's saying, I am coming back for you. You don't know when, but I have given you specific abilities. I have given you specific responsibilities. I have given you specific talents and abilities, and I want you to use them for me while I'm gone. I am entrusting you with taking care of the house. What does it mean to take care of the house? It means to be mission-minded and discipleship-driven. How do we take care of the house? Well, we look no further than the life of Jesus. How did Jesus serve? The Gospel of Mark, as we've been studying, it, it, it serves to show us and teach us that Jesus is and was the master servant. How did Jesus serve? Well, we know that Jesus served missionally. I don't even know if that's a real word, but I'm using it. He served missionally. He traveled extensively. He got up early. He went to bed late. He worked long hours. Our God knows what it's like to work. He knows what it's like to do back-breaking work. He knows what it's like to get his hands dirty. He stressed the importance of repentance, changing our minds and our attitudes towards sin and turning away from it. Jesus also served practically. He fed people. 
He laid his hands on people. He forgave them of their sins. He cast out demons. Jesus also served intentionally. He was intentional with people. He spent time with people. He noticed people. He sought people out. He broke bread with people. He had dinner with people, even people who we would probably shy away from. He invited them in. He didn't say to his disciples, you know, come follow me by the way you're, you're preaching next week. No. He got to know them. He built a relationship with them. He started off small baby steps, had them doing small things like handing out food, passing out food, organizing crowds, getting them seated, bringing people to him. Jesus was also intentional with his father. He knew when to get away from the busyness, when to get away from the noise. He spent time with his father. He modeled the importance and showed us the significance of quiet time and reflection with God. Do we spend enough time with God? He modeled intense prayer, how to pray. He was intentional. Jesus also served sacrificially. There are many times in Scripture where Jesus would would put his needs last in order to minister to people. There are many times where he would put aside his desire for food, rest, to minister to people. He would ultimately do the, 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 the greatest thing that anybody can do. He gave up his life as a ransom for us, as a means for a fallen and broken people to be reconciled, to be bought back to a holy and righteous God. And he's even serving us right now. He's praying for us at this very moment. He's praying for each and every one of you at this very moment. He has a name specifically for each and every one of you that you don't even know. He's fighting our battles right now. He's working as we were singing about, even though we don't know what he's doing. And he's going to serve us again because he's going to come back for us and he's going to take care of our enemies for us. We won't even have to lift a finger. He served missionally, practically, intentionally, and sacrificially. What we're going to do is we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And to give you guys a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul and Silas, a brother in Christ, a partner in ministry, they traveled to the Greek city of Thessalonica, and they began preaching the gospel, and lots of people come to Christ And it's there that they build the first church in that area. And things are going fantastic. Lots of people are coming to Christ. It's kind of like North Point. Things are going great. But even though there's all this momentum, there's resistance. You see, a lot of the Jews and and Greeks and uh, their neighbors were upset about this. And so they they go to Rome, they go to Caesar, and they complain to Caesar. And what Caesar does is he comes against the church. He persecutes the church. Who is this king you're following? Who is this king you're giving your lives to? Who is this king you're surrendering to? And it's such a vicious persecution that Paul and Silas had to flee, which really hurt Paul because he loved the church, and the church loved Paul. The church had a couple questions. Number one, What happens to our loved ones when they die? You see, they lost a lot of friends and they lost a lot of relatives. And and reason being, it's believed it was because of martyrdom. Many of their friends and relatives died as martyrs. 
And so the church wanted to know. They had a couple pressing questions. What happens when our loved ones pass away? And so when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul answers their question. And he says, because our relatives had a relationship with Christ, because they've been made right with Christ, they have salvation. They have the promise of eternity. And we will see them again. When Jesus comes back, he talks about the good things that are going to happen. When Jesus comes back, how he's going to come through the sky, and all of a sudden, the first order of business, he's going to raise the dead that, have already, that are currently with him in spirit out of their graves by name, and how they're going to be gloriously and, and physically reborn, and how we're going to be raptured up with him, and how there's going to be this great reunion. But they had another question, another pressing question. The question was, does all this indicate that Jesus is coming back soon. And they wanted to know, is Jesus coming back soon? When is Jesus coming back? And then judging from Paul's response, it's almost as if the church couldn't move a step forward until they found out. They wanted to know. And I want you to listen to what Paul says to them, starting at verse 1. He says, now concerning how... And when all this will happen, dear brothers. Now, what he's talking about when he says the how and when, what he's referring to specifically is a span of time in which we as human beings wait for something. He's saying, now concerning how and when all this will happen, he says, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. He's saying, you can't figure it out. It's not for us to know. You don't need to know. We don't know. Verse 2, he says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Wouldn't it be nice if thieves and burglars would let us know ahead of time when they're planning on jacking us? Wouldn't it be nice if you, all of a sudden you're at home and you get a, you open the door and say, hey, um, you don't know me, but uh, I plan on stopping by Thursday night, 3 a.m., you know, uh, just just want to let you know. You got a TV. I, I want it. You may not want to go on vacation next week. If you do, you might want to leave an extra car behind, leave a couple lights on, kind of throw me off a little bit. Is that the way things work? No. Should we expect them to do that? No. They're just going to come in. They see something they want, they're going to get it, Right? Notice what Paul is saying in this verse. He's talking about when, G- when he says the, the thief, he'll come like a thief in the middle of the night. What he's saying is when Jesus comes back, it's going to happen at a time where, as far as we're concerned, the church, things couldn't possibly be any worse. Things are going to get worse. They are. Jesus warns his disciples explicitly. Things are going to get worse. You are going to be hated for me. You're going to be persecuted for me. And let's talk about that for a second. Why in the world will we be persecuted for following Christ? The answer is simple. Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh, the image of the invisible God, is and was the living embodiment of absolute truth. And if there's one thing a culture hates, especially our culture in 2022, it's truth. It's objectivity. We live in a culture 
that seeks to do everything it can to buck against, suppress, flatten, and stamp out truth. They would rather hear a lie than to be told the truth. For the sake of doing what's right, in the name of being nice to people, in the name of being tolerant and loving, we would rather lie to people. Even though what they're doing, even if it makes them feel good, we know it's going to lead to pain, and we know it's going to lead to destruction, and we know it's going to lead to death. And what he's saying is when the world gets to a point where it's so embroiled in its selfishness, when it's so embroiled in its carelessness, when it's so embroiled in its murder, when it's so embroiled in its sexual chaos and anarchy, when it gets to a point when they think things couldn't be any better, when things couldn't be any more comfortable, we're finally living the life we want, all of a sudden... Jesus... God, like the thief, is going to break in. And for them, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. That should break our hearts for people that don't know Jesus. It should break our hearts. But for us, the church, even though we suffer, even though we go through difficulties, it's going to be great. With Jesus, the best is yet to come. What does it mean to be watchful? I'm going to define that real quick. To be watchful, it means to be in a state of spiritual preparedness. It means to be vigilant. A real good friend of mine, first service this morning, he's a security guard at UTMC. I think of him, you know, he's, he's like a night watchman. He's like a night patrolman. It's his job to keep watch over the school. The safety of the students, the safety of the workers is dependent on how vigilant he is. And if he's not paying attention, then bad things can happen. Not only is his career on the line, but the safety of everyone else is on the line. That's what it means to be vigilant, to be in a state of spiritual preparedness. Verse 4, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. I want you to think about that for a second. It's going to be, I can't wrap my head around what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. But what he's saying here in this passage is that when it happens, we're not going to be surprised. In other words, from the perspective, we're not going to be in terror. We're not going to be afraid. We're not going to be running around, scrambling, trying to do things, Right? It's like when I was a kid, if I was only taking care of the house, doing what I was supposed to be doing, when mom came back, it would have been, you know, hey, you know, she's back. That's, that, she's like, I'm back. I'm like, yeah, well, I know you live here. <laughs> you know, I, w- I wouldn't be panicking like I did so many times. Verse 5, verse 6, he says, so, uh, verse 5, he says, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and light. Now, notice something here. Back in the old days of scripture, they would assign nicknames to people based upon certain physical characteristics or certain behaviors that stood out. And whatever you were known for, they would give you that nickname. So in other words, if Petey, if all you ate was peanut M&Ms, they would say, here comes Petey, the child of candy, the child of junk food, right? If all Connor did was read comic books, they would say, oh, here comes Connor, the son of D.C., the son of Marvel, right? 
As a matter of fact, in Scripture, two of Jesus' disciples were called what? The sons of thunder. Why? Because they were impetuous. They were quick-tempered. They wanted to misappropriate God's power to exact vengeance on people who they didn't agree with. Right? They were called the sons of thunder. What Jesus is saying is what you do, you're going to be known for. But notice what he says here. He says, we are all children of the light. Now, many times in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. And what he's saying is that we, if we have given our lives to Jesus, if we have accepted his, his, his salvation, then we are, by definition, by nature, by identity, his children. You are his child this morning. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, Regardless of your issues, we all have issues. Regardless of your problems, regardless of your past, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you are a son of the light. That's who we are. When I think of, you know, names that they would ascribe to people, one of my favorite people in this church is Brother Chuck, Chuck Simon Straub. Have you ever noticed how he likes to, how he seeks you out at the end of service? You know, my Sunday morning, Jessica's Sunday morning, is not complete unless we get a hug from Brother Chuck. He would be the son of unconditional love. But here's the interesting thing. I know that's not who Chuck really is. See, Chuck is a son of the light. He's a child of God, and what he does is a byproduct of that. His identity is not in him hugging people. It's just a byproduct of his true identity, which is a son of Christ, right, which is, which is, which is a child of God. Another good friend of mine, I don't, I don't know if he's here this morning, but his name's Josh. He runs Spartan races. He's real fit. If I didn't know who he was, I would say he's the son of Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? But I know that's not who Josh really is. I know that Josh is a disciple. He's a follower of Christ, and even if he couldn't run Spartan races anymore, that doesn't change who he is. He doesn't get his value from it. He doesn't get his identity from it. We have to know our identity. We have to know who we are. You're not your skin color. You're not your ethnicity. You're not your political leanings. You're not your money. You're not your status. You're not your past. You're who God says you are. He says, we don't belong to darkness and light now. Sons of the darkness, that might sound cool like some vampire movie, but I want you guys to understand the connotation. You see, my grandmother, God rest her soul, I've told you about my grandmother before. She's, with heaven, she's in heaven with Jesus right now. But my grandmother was very spiritual. She loved Jesus. And a lot of times she would see people in the neighborhood that we grew up in, and she would see the same people sitting on the same street corners. She'd see the same people drinking the same malt liquor out of the same paper bags, she would see the same people brawling in the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she would let out this deep, exasperated sigh, and she would go, they're the walking dead. Long before it ever became a comic book, long before it ever became a TV show, long before it ever became this cultural phenomenon that took everybody by storm, my grandmother noticed the walking dead, meaning they are children of the darkness. They are Satan's kids. They're dead in their sins, they're separated from God, they're condemned, even though they're functional, and they don't even know it. Paul says that's not who we are. Verse 6, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Let's look at that word for a second. What does it mean to be asleep? 
Is Paul talking about physical sleep? No. The word asleep in this particular context, it means to be in a state of indifference. We just simply don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Joining a life group? Why do I want to join a life group? I don't like people. I don't want to be around people. Help out with the kids on Sunday morning? I don't even like kids. Why do I want to do that? Project generosity? I don't want to be told to give sacrificially, generously, uh, consistently, and what's the, what's the final one? Uh, right. You know, I don't want to be told to do those things with my money. It's my money. As a matter of fact, if their church talks about giving one more time, I'm, I'm out of there. There are some of us who are perfectly content. And listen, i got to say this real quick. If this is you this morning, I'm not trying to throw shade at you. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm not trying to put you down. But there are some of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who are perfectly content coming into church unnoticed, sitting in the back unnoticed. You know, we want four songs. They better not go too long. The message better not be too long. It better grab my ears, and we want to get out of there as quickly as possible. We don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want to connect with anybody. We certainly don't want to hug anybody. We want to be completely anonymous. God has not called us, his disciples, to be anonymous. I struggle with that as I was preparing for this message. I'm like, man, you know, I, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but we got to remember something. Jesus came to comfort the disturbed. Amen. But he also became... He also came to disturb the comfortable. And as disciples, we are not called to lives of comfort. We are not called to lives of, of fame or recognition. We are not called to lives of ease, but we are called to lives of sacrifice. Night is the time when people sleep and get drunk. Paul is again speaking metaphorically. He's talking about those who belong to Satan, Satan's kids. What they do, they're indifferent. Their lives are marked by indifferent. Their lives are marked by chaos and craziness and drunkenness, not you. But let us who live in the light, those who let us live in the light of Jesus Christ, he says, be clear-headed, protected by the armor and faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about putting on the full armor of Christ, putting on the helmet of salvation, knowing that we belong to him, knowing that we've been set apart, knowing that our lives and our fates are sealed, knowing that immortality waits for us, knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ, knowing that we are his children, and putting that helmet on, it keeps out the voices. It keeps out the false narratives. It keeps out the strongholds. It keeps out the confusion. He talks about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, not my righteousness, but God's righteousness. Protecting our vitals with his righteousness, knowing that we have been made right with God. He talks about putting on the belt of truth, which is Jesus. And the tighter we, 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 we wear that belt, the better everything holds together. He talks about the shield of faith, knowing that we can go to God with any request, any concern, any petition. And not only will he hear, but he will also listen and he will also answer. Not the way we want him to, maybe not when we want him to but he'll do it. He talks about the feet of peace. Friends, we don't have to wait for peace like the rest of the world. We can walk in it, even in these crazy times. 
And lastly, he talks about the sword of the spirit. Let me ask you something. In all that, all that armory, do you, do, you, do you ever hear about a sheath of the spirit? Do you ever hear about a scabbard of the spirit? No, because that sword is always supposed to be in our right hand, our hand of action. It's the very word of God that cuts through and separates the false narratives from the biblical truths. We're supposed to go into this crazy world armed and dangerous. Verse 9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour his anger out on us. It wasn't God's will that we perish. It wasn't God's will that we be separated from him for eternity. It wasn't good enough for, for us to be separated from him. So what did he do? He, he, he made a way. He provided Jesus for us to be made right with him, for us to have a relationship with him. He's our vindicator. We've been acquitted, cleared of all charges by his sacrifice. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. Friends, it is a win-win situation. We're not losers. We're winners. No matter what happens here, we know how the story ends. We win. We win. And here's the last verse. So encourage each other. And build each other up, just as you are already doing. What does that look like? Friends, this is life groups. What do we say at church? Life change happens best during what? God has not called us to be anonymous, friends. We're, called, we're supposed to be well-known by each other. Well-known. This is life groups. This is our flourish ministry. This is rooted ministry. This is having friends who are intentional, who you can be intentional with. This is grieving with one another, not just celebrating the good times, but going through the hard times. This is what I call having trench friends, foxhole friends. Life gets too heavy, and it will. When tragedy strikes, and it will, these are the people who are there with you. Build each other up. Encourage each other. Take care of the house. What are our feelings this morning? Real quick. Easy peasy. Taking care of the house is knowing who the house belongs to. Knowing who and whose we are. You know why I got in trouble so many times as a kid? Because I forgot who the house belonged to. It wasn't my house. If it was my house, I can play video games all day long. I can eat ice cream all day long. But it wasn't my house. Taking care of the house is number two, not being asleep. Friends, the time for indifference is over. The time for not caring is over. The time for what does that have to do with me is over. Awake, awake, you slumber. Number three, taking care of the house is having the right coverage. You can't upkeep the house if you don't have the right coverage. Put on the full armor of God and never leave home without it. Number four, Taking care of the house. If we're going to upkeep the house, we have to get connected. We have to stay connected. Some assembly is required. God requires us to connect with one another. He requires us to have relationships with one another. Why? Because he's a living embodiment of relationships. And for us to not understand that is to not understand him. Take care of the house. Let's pray together. If you, for whatever the reason, 
finds yourself in a season or a situation where you're not taking care of the house, as you examine your own life, if you don't feel you're taking care of the house and there's something that's holding you back, something that's preventing you from taking care of the house. You know, I humorously use video games and comic books, but, but for some of us, maybe it's some type of sin that we haven't yet dealt with, that we haven't yet confessed. Maybe it's a relationship that's strained with another brother or sister in Christ that's waiting for reconciliation and we didn't do things the right way. Is there something that you, that, that you want God to use you for this morning? Do you have certain gifts or abilities or talents? Is, is God pressing on you this morning to work for him? Remember, God gave us all gifts and abilities to use in upkeeping the house. Why are you not using yours? If that's you this morning, there's an opportunity. Today is an opportunity. There's healing in this place. There's redemption in this place. There's power in this place. There's repurpose in this place. Jesus wants to meet with you. He wants to take your baggage from you if you let him. The best thing about this is that Jesus has confidence in you this morning. He knows you can take care of the house. We can't say we didn't know, because we do know. He's coming back for us. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for whose we are. And I know I say it a lot, but Lord, we have to know. We have to know. Father, where there's unconfessed sin in here, Lord, where there are distractions in here, we ask that in the name of Jesus, Lord, you will begin removing them from us. Lord, open our eyes up to who we are and what you've called us to do. We don't know when you're coming back, but Lord, we celebrate that you are. Lord, may we be ready. We don't want to be indifferent anymore. And some of us who have gifts and, and talents and abilities, Lord, um, awaken those in us. Lord, may we use them. Give us opportunities to serve like you did, to be intentional like you did. And Lord, help us to always spend time with you. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.